That's what drives resilience. That's what we see in nature. Ecosystems become more resilient through their version of mistakes, which are mutations and adaptations at organisms and, and cellular levels that help make that ecosystem stronger over time. We need to do the same in our organizations. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows hits and misses, and everything in between. Hey there, welcome into another episode of Human Resolve. I'm Mark Minner, President and Chief Strategy Officer at First Person and we are delighted to welcome in our special guest, our featured guest today, Elliot Parker, who we've got a lot to talk about with Elliot. But prior to his current role as CEO of High Alpha Innovation, Elliot has worked in strategy consulting, corporate ventures. He's been an entrepreneur to bring new ideas to market. And as you look at where High Alpha Innovation is headed, High Alpha Innovation partners with leading organizations to innovate through systematic startup creation. They apply the venture studio model they developed at High Alpha and the principles of disruption theory to rapidly build and scale software companies. Elliot, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. We've also got Brian Brenner, our founder and CEO at First Person. Brian, I don't have a long intro like that for you. No worries, Mark. <laughs> Just glad to be here. Absolutely. Elliot, first off, High Alpha Innovation, there's a lot of energy right now, but certainly the High Alpha name, what the studio has been able to do has been impressive, capping on the momentum gained from Exact Target and just the, the abundance of energy in the city around technology and startups and the entrepreneurial spirit. Now High Alpha Innovation takes it a step further. What has this past year been like for you and how exciting is this new endeavor? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. We uh, launched High Alpha Innovation as a spin-out from High Alpha a year ago, the purpose of making the venture studio model accessible to partners. And as you said, Mark, helping large organizations, corporations, and universities systematically innovate through startup creation. And it's been uh, amazing. The response we've gotten over the last year has been incredible. Our team has grown. We started with three people, just hired our 18th employee this week. And we've got an amazing team of people who are uh, first and foremost company builders and entrepreneurs, but who have also done it inside of big companies. People who led innovation at companies like Target or Marriott or Mercedes-Benz on our team. Um, and with a healthy dose of venture capital experience as well, we kind of bring to this. And yeah, really optimistic about where things are headed for this, this model that we're creating and the way that we're changing how large organizations actually innovate in meaningful ways. We'll certainly talk more about High Alpha Innovation as, as we go throughout, but we get the pleasure of talking about you, Elliot, getting to know you, getting to know your history and, and what drives you and your philosophies. And what's interesting, you're so ingrained in this entrepreneurial spirit right now, but this is something that you knew you were going to be an entrepreneur before you were even born because of how it's been in the family lineage for multiple generations. Yeah, it is. It's in the DNA as far back. I, I am a, a nut for family history. So I've traced my family history back a long, long time. As far back as I can go, it's entrepreneurs all the way back. People were farming or I count that as a, a certainly a very daring form of entrepreneurship. 
but more more proximate my my dad my grandpa and were entrepreneurs who i i could watch and, and learn from as i was growing up and now you know the oldest of six siblings i think nearly all of the the siblings and or their spouses are engaged in entrepreneurial endeavors right now so in the blood for sure and when you look at that and your own journey about what your career was going to look like the idea of entrepreneurship I think was a journey for you to figure out what does that really mean? And when, and when it comes to purpose and, and what do I want to do to, to contribute and understanding what it truly meant to be an entrepreneur and the impact that entrepreneurs have on society. Yeah. Entrepreneurs change the world. I think entrepreneurs are heroes. And I, it first struck me that that was true when I was in college, I was attending Brigham Young university. I had a Professor Bryson, who gave a kind of a last day lecture for one of his classes to us. And I was majoring in finance at the time, which seemed to me like the most selfish thing I could possibly major in. <laughs> I, I wasn't particularly passionate about the topic, but thought like it felt like a good way to, to make money one day would be to major in finance and go be an investment banker or something. And that last day of class, Professor Bryson got up and gave a, a lecture on how management is one of the most noble things you can choose to do. Because number one, you are, by definition, your, your objective is to figure out how to make more with less, how to kind of adopt an abundant mindset and figure out how to, how to create more in the world to make the world a better place. Number two, the reason, uh, one of the, the, the byproducts of building companies and forming organizations coming together with others to collaborate is that we enable people to achieve their potential, to reach their potential, to learn. Isn't that part of the kind of the, the whole point of us being alive at all? And I, I came out of that thinking, boy, maybe I, I don't need to go be a doctor or something to do something noble. I can work in this management profession and make a difference. And a few years later, I remember working for a, a large company and I was the you know, first day on the job looking out the window of the office at a parking lot full, filled with thousands of cars. And I, it struck me that uh, each of those cars represented a person, in many cases, a family that was achieving their dreams, you know, making memories, doing all the things they wanted to do because one guy years ago had started that company in his garage. And I thought, man, that would be cool to be that guy and see that kind of impact and make that kind of difference in so many people's lives. And so I, I am, have always, uh, as a result of that and my experiences growing up, admired entrepreneurs and what they do, the risk they're willing to take on, but the difference they make in the world. Elliot, I can relate to this concept of first job showing up with all those cars and that sense of responsibility. And this was before I became an entrepreneur, even maybe knew what one was. But I also have learned as an entrepreneur that my growing up on a farm really has shaped a lot of the way I think about work and what it means. You, you talk about nobility and this idea of building and growing. And I'm curious how that farming background or that family, how that sort of plays into how you show up each day and how you, you work with people. And, it, and is that different than people that don't have that experience? That's a good question. I, I, do, I, I do think it informs just being tied to that family history and understanding generations before I think about my legacy. You know, we used to live in Massachusetts and we lived in, in a town, funny enough, where my ancestors and my wife's ancestors were next door neighbors 300 years before. And boy, 
when I went out and drove around, would think a lot about what they had done and what I was doing and uh, what my descendants would think of me 300 years later. We lived down the street from a, a family farm, not ours, uh, another family in town. It, it created this farm in 1715. It had been around for 300 years, passed through the hands of that family. They still, that family still have the deed to the land from the King of England. And I thought that person 300 years ago created a, an amazing legacy. What can I do to be a better ancestor? And I think a big part of that is the influence that we can have over the people around us, hopefully for good. And how many disputes over those 300 years, the hedges or the, the lawns being mowed in the right lines? And yeah. Can you imagine the pressure <laughs> of being the, the poor person who's like, who's running that farm right now and thinking, I'm not, not on my watch, right? This thing's... Do not mess this up. This thing's gotta work. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so, okay, you commit and you're like, now I'm, I understand there's some nobility in management. There's nobility in the idea of starting, growing businesses, leading people. But now you got to learn how to do that. Now you got to actually understand what does that take? And, and that's not as easy as just reading one textbook and, and going in and suddenly you're, you're in management or I'm an entrepreneur and this is my one tech. It's a lot of, you got to learn, you got to understand, you got to work, you got to get it. How do you embark on that journey? Learn from lots of examples around me, more good than bad, but both are informative and teaching, right? Part of the, the way my parents raised me and my siblings was they had this, um, you know, there's no better laboratory for leadership than inside a family. And now as a father of five kids, I, I get that. I'm uh, very, made very aware of my, uh, my shortcomings in that laboratory <laughs> as a leader, right? It's hard. It's a thing where you, you don't see the immediate, immediate impact of your decision. It comes, your decisions, that impact come, happens years down the road as you're, you're forming uh, that family culture and, and helping your kids along. But my, my parents did a good job of leading through love of our family. I, I didn't want to disappoint them when I was growing up. I certainly wasn't afraid of them. I knew they loved me and I loved them and I wanted to do my best for them. And that was a, a first kind of lesson in leadership that I've carried. And I think that that applies in business too, that good leaders are kind of earn the respect and love of those that they work with. And I've worked with for bosses that similarly, I did not want to disappoint because I so admired them and wanted to do whatever I could to either help them or to impress them or to be able to do more things with them. And so I, I think that's a powerful leadership lesson. You know, I, I think of some bad examples too. I remember one of my... Yeah, I said, that, enough with the good. Tell us... The, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of my first job out of school, hopefully he's not going to listen to this, but I, I was working in a company where we were doing intellectual property valuation. So my job right out of school, I remember one of the first things I did was trying to figure out the, the value of Princess Diana of Wales, her imagery, her likeness after she passed away. Uh, this company had made a bunch of paraphernalia with her face on it and her family trust was suing because they didn't have permission. I had to figure out well, what, is it, what is that worth? Weird stuff to, to do. But anyway, I, my job was to do the analysis to come make the kind of prepare the presentation and go to a partner who would then evaluate it, critique it. I remember going in with my manager to make the case to the partner, the work we had done with my manager. I, we had been advocating kind of different paths and there was one kind of way I wanted to approach it, a type of analysis we wanted to do. He advocated another path. So that's what we ended up doing. Went into the partner the partner said, why did you do it this way? The manager said, this was Elliot's idea. 
And I looked at him. I couldn't believe it. It absolutely was not my idea. I'd been arguing for the way the partner wanted us to do it. And I thought, man, I hope I am never a leader like that. I'm going to do my best to take the blame when I do something and, and to, to give my team the praise, hopefully. That's a, a lofty aspiration. I'm, I'm sure I've fallen short of that over the years, but that was a lesson to me. You don't think you're going to get involved in trying to value Princess Diana's likeness. I mean, that's an, what an incredibly random and super like <laughs> world you know, impact type thing. Every young leader's dream is that I would be associated with Princess Di in some way. It's a great, it's just a great party story. Subscribe to the 11 out of 10, six star, three thumbs up boost, a weekly newsletter for superhuman resource leaders that covers everything you need to know to take your HR career to the next level. Subscribe at firstpersonadvisors.com slash boost. Elliot, I'm curious, you talk a lot about, you know, learning and growing and, and failing and doing that in the context of a sense of family. How does that work yeah. its way through it at High Alpha Innovation? And where have you found your inspiration to bring that idea of family and business together? Because that's a, that can go well, it can go not well, in my experience. So yeah. talk, talk about yeah. that. It's a good question. I, you know, there people have different philosophies on this. Some people say our company is a family. Others say our company is a, a high-performing team. We should be like a professional soccer team or, or baseball team or whatever and be able to, to trade, fire, hire at will. I think the reality is that uh, the best companies are somewhere in between those two. As we've been building high-off innovation over the last year, we've been thinking very deliberately about this. What kind of culture do we want? And I, I want a place where people feel secure. Everybody's been hired onto this team for a reason, because there are things they do exceptionally well. They're going to help us all be better in different ways. That's why they're here. I don't want people to feel like they need to be perfect at everything. So in some ways, we want some of that security of a family. And I think that enables people to go make mistakes and learn and get better and also to do things that are daring right? We want people to do daring things in our company as long as the risks are bounded <laughs> when that happens. So I, I want a culture that's somewhere between a family and a team that way. I want people to feel secure, but also to know they were chosen. In a family, you don't choose. You're, you're with those people forever, for, for better, for worse. That's not true in a company. People will come and go. So it's not a family. But I also don't think of it as a, a team where we're, we're trading players out year in, year out, to optimize for some um, getting first place. There are other objectives in running a business beyond just being in first place, I think. Elliot, this year in particular, obviously an interesting time to launch more companies, launch a bit. What, what did you learn from a management perspective or how you lead or how you see leadership changing moving forward as a result of this past year and everything that's been associated with it? Yeah, one, one thing that's been hard for us this year, I think this has been universally true, is how to cultivate uh, connection in this environment. And that's not just true in business over the last year. Everybody's been kind of trapped in their homes to a great degree, and we all miss that connection. We've run experiments in the company. Uh, none of it really replaces that yeah, face-to-face -face interaction you get and the bonds that you build that way. Zoom just doesn't quite cut it all the time for that, but... We have had to think about how we deliberately create those interactions that will foster some types of connection. You know, we're still small enough 
18 people that we can, we can do a 30 minute kind of open zoom every day where people can jump in or out and just shoot the breeze, have conversations, have those random collisions that lead to good ideas. So we do that. That's something that we've, we've been practicing in our company. Not perfect. It's again, not as good as in person, but it's better than nothing. And we're trying to figure out ways to foster connections. And this has been hard the last year. Well, I think we're all ready to uh, be face to face more often. It'll, it'll be a welcomed, welcomed moment for all of us. No kidding. Elliot, you um, clearly have a sense of lifelong learning and just continuing to to, to build into yourself. I, I recently happily turned in my last paper for my master's program, and I I finally did it. I'd wanted to with with what four hours to spare. Or? I think I did it. Just yeah, I think I had about a, about a 40, 45 minutes before midnight is kind of my style. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Congrats, yeah. king of procrastination. But I did get an A. As I'm listening to you and we were preparing for this, I, I would love for you to talk about that, that form, you know, those more formative learning experiences with folks like Clayton Christensen, you mentioned, and maybe, maybe describe some of how you've looked to other heroes to figure out how to become that, that sense of entrepreneurial hero yourself. I, I'm curious about that. Yeah. There's an old saying, you know, you, you become the people you surround yourself with. So you think carefully about who you're surrounding yourself with and hopefully people who are better than you, which I aspire to do. And is, is fairly easy in my case, but I, yeah, I, I did. I've, I have worked with some really amazing people over the years. One of whom was, was Clay Christensen, who, you know, big management thinker came up with this idea of disruptive innovation and the innovator's dilemma. And I was a big admirer of his and thought if I ever had a chance to work in his orbit, I would drop everything and go do it. And I got the chance and, went and worked for a consulting company that he had founded and made a point of getting to know him and being able to work close to him and being able to go meet with him when I felt like I was stuck on some of the problems that I was trying to solve. And it's amazing. You come out, you get close to, to someone you admire like that. It's rare that you come out the back end admiring that person even more. But in that case, it was true. Uh, there's a, a couple things about Clay that I really admired quite a bit and learned from. Number one was his, uh, his ability to kind of make everyone feel important. He would deliberately do this and actively work on doing it. When he went to a social event, if you watched him, he would go around person to person and you would see him do this and make a point of, of trying to figure out what he could do to help that individual. Whether it was just, you know, some, you know, pat on the back and some praise, uh, making a, an introduction, helping with an idea, whatever it was, he was, his goal was, I'm going to, here's a room of 30 people. I'm going to figure out how to help as many of those people as I can tonight. And that's crazy. That, that, is a, that is a really rare mindset. But I can't tell you how many people I've met over the years who said, oh, let me tell you about the time Clay Christensen helped me. And I just, how, how did he have time to do this? But a, good, a good example of this. I remember one time I met with Clay. I was meeting at his office and I got a call from his, uh, one morning, got a call from his secretary asking if we could bump back our meeting a little bit. And went in and learned that the, the reason they'd had to bump my call, my, my meeting with him back a little bit is that he had had a call that morning with the Senate Majority Leader of the United States. So his agenda that morning was um, the U.S. Senate Majority Leader, the mayor of New York City, and Elliot Parker. <laughs> like, in no particular order yeah, in terms yeah. of importance. Like, man, it's so, so strange to be Clay, but amazing that he'd still, everybody was important to him. And he treated, he didn't care uh, about what your, your role or title was. He'd take the, the time to help you out. How, e how easy is that, Elliot, that 
through life? Like how easy is it to not do that? Right. It's so easy to not do that. In that decision, there are a myriad of choices you're making about priorities, right? It's, you can never, it's kind of a, a, a good, better, best set of options you're always dealing with. I can, I can go choose to help this person right now, but Hey, my family needs time for me right now as well. I can go, you know, it, it gets really hard in the, in the weeds. So I, I admire people who are very good at that and balancing that. And, and Clay was one of the best, you know, if you think about just a barrage every day of people coming to him with opportunities or requests and being able to, to still figure out how to prioritize and help. So that, that was one. The other, the other thing Clay was amazing at was just problem solving and helpful in all aspects of life. But one big lesson on that was he always said, if you're getting stuck and trying to solve a problem, it's probably because you don't have the categories right. And so the first thing we would always do when trying to solve a hard problem is just kind of ask ourselves, are we categorizing the, the issues and prioritizing them correctly? What I mean by that, it, this, this comes out often in the world of innovation as an example, where you see companies trying to innovate around the way their products exist. So they make them faster, better, cheaper, different colors, and so on. They're thinking about the categories wrong. The, the categories they should be looking at are the needs, the jobs to be done of the customers they're trying to innovate for. Once you understand that and have categorized those needs appropriately, it opens up all sorts of opportunities for innovation. So, Elliot, uh, that this is, I think, an interesting topic around what job are we trying to, to do? Most of our listeners are in the people business. They're trying to innovate in the people business. The business has changed so dramatically from the days of, you know, industrialization, moving into the, you know, creative minds and, and, and different ways of working. Talk a little bit more about that when we're trying to get something new done and we're looking at how to get something to be different. Talk more about that process of what kinds of jobs and how to think about that. There's this theory called jobs to be done theory, of which Clay was a big proponent, that is the, the thing that can change a company more than anything else in th that I've seen. Once this is broadly adopted inside an organization, it opens up all kinds of opportunities for thinking about situations and, and where we might go, everything differently. So job, job to be done, in a nutshell, what it is, is, is this idea that we, we don't really buy products or services. We actually hire them to do jobs for us. And when a better product or service comes along to satisfy that job to be done, we'll fire the product or service we were using and hire a new product or service. And this, it's very easy to, to apply that in the world of you know, consumer products, for example. You think about in any instance, we have functional, social, and emotional jobs to be done that we're trying to solve through the products that we buy at the grocery store. If you, you sit down and really think about it or think about what you've got in your, your, your purse or your backpack right now, you've got a bunch of different things in there. Or, or think about the, the, you know, the shoes you chose to wear today, satisfying different functional, social, and emotional jobs to be done. And this applies in our, our it's, it's a really helpful theory when we're interacting with other people too, to think about as a leader or uh, interacting with peers to think about and consider what is this individual's set of jobs to be done right now? What are the problems that they're trying to solve in, within their particular circumstance? And to think about at the level functional jobs to be done, the things they just need to get, get done um, from an HR perspective, right? Somebody, somebody hires a company, actually, when company hires that person, they're also hiring a company to do jobs to be done for them, right? So I'm going to go work for this company and take this position because functional job to be done, it pays well. Social job to be done, 
I'm going to be so excited to tell people I work for this company and, and what they're going to think about me as a result. Emotional jobs to be done, as an example, this, I, I, I don't have to worry about paying my mortgage at, or long-term job security here is good. There's some emotional jobs to be done that get solved through that position. So when we think about the jobs to be done, the individuals that we're recruiting or that we have on our teams, it, it helps us understand how to better shape the opportunities that we present to them. But it's also useful at the level just when I walk into a meeting with people, I'm walking into a room sometimes for a difficult conversation. I am actively thinking about people around the table. What are their jobs to be done in this meeting? And I know that if, if I can help them satisfy their jobs to be done, there's a better chance that I'm going to be able to satisfy my jobs to be done over the next 30 to 60 minutes in this meeting. And it's an amazing trick to be able to, to think about the situations you find yourself in that way. You find that you're able to get a lot more of the things done that you want to get done when you are looking at the objectives of the people around you and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I'm sort of seeing this beautifully woven like gold thread through what you've talked about of thinking of people as family, then this idea of helping people, which Clay was just uh, that mesmerized you and, and captured. And then this idea of the very practical way of thinking about what do people real, what does this person in front of me really need? What are they trying to get done? And how do I, how do I help get that job done better? It just creates this sort of beautiful, how people get what they need and, and a dash of humanity in the middle of it. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's great. It's a beautiful picture. Wow. This episode is powerful. Are you feeling it too? Take 23 seconds. Seriously, we timed it. To leave Human Resolve a review on Apple Podcasts. We might just give you a shout out. Plus, more reviews means we get access to more influential, impactful people leaders from across the globe. It's a win-win. Thanks so much. When you look, Elliot, at, you get exposed to so many companies, so many companies, either that you're working directly with or that you're a part of, or you've got influence on, or you've consulted on, this jobs to be done concept seems to be pretty universal in terms of not just for company by company, but also just in so many different interactions with how you approach day-to-day experience. When you look at what makes companies successful, and when you look at common mistakes that companies make when they get started... Is one of the biggest mistakes the idea of maybe the wrong focus and, and, and that idea of where the categorization is wrong or things? Is that one of the biggest things that you've seen over time? And or what other common challenges do you see, whether it's startup or just just businesses in general, when they're butting their head up against a wall? I can talk about this topic for a long, long time. <laughs> We've got, I see this. Here's, here's the biggest problem I see in, in companies as they grow and as they scale is that they shift from a growth mindset to a mindset of preservation of the status quo. And what that means, and now there there are good reasons for that, right? When we build a a large organization, let's say we've got an organization with 30,000 employees, we do not want that company to fail. And we want to do everything we can to make sure that company is going to endure and last and perform at its best. What that looks like in practice is that in the organization, we put in place systems and processes and incentives, and we hire people, all these things to eradicate risk and variability, to push it out of the company, to get rid of it. And what that does is it actually makes the company counterintuitively less resilient over time. 
And COVID has been an, an excellent example, uh, has brought this to bear and has, has shown some good examples of this. I, I was reading, it was interesting to go, if you go back and look at press releases of big companies right before COVID hit, what all these companies were focused on and thinking about, nobody anticipated what the next year was going to look like. And it is, it is a fun exercise. Just go, go look at press releases from big companies like late February 2020. It's amazing how different things were just a year ago, year plus. But it was all about risk eradication, getting variability out of the system. We think about, you know, Jack Welch, former CEO of GE, was an amazing leader in many ways. But in one fundamental thing, he was very, very wrong. And he has a, a famous quote, says, variability is evil. And his goal in, in GE was to eradicate variability from the system, to make it as predictable as possible. And so what you do to do that, it, you put in place hierarchies and rigid systems designed to eradicate variability. And what that does is it squashes human ingenuity. People are not designed to operate and function well in those environments. You're not getting the best out of people. So what one of the jobs of a leader, uh, especially as organizations grow, is to understand how you balance those two different objectives. Number one, we have to make sure this thing endures and continues to grow and, and do well, which means we have to get we have to run it efficiently. We have to get rid of, of a great deal of the variability. We can't take on all the risks we did when we were a 20-person startup. But at the same time, you have to let in a certain degree of risk and variability. You have to let in a certain degree of human ingenuity. And that is what builds resilience over time. There's a, there's a back to the COVID thing. A year ago, there was a, a company that's a supplier to automotive manufacturers. They built this amazing, amazing ecosystem of factories around the world, like 180 factories, billions of parts being produced. This is massive, well-designed system that was in many ways, just this incredible feat of human ingenuity developed over decades. Along comes COVID and you know, the supply chain starts breaking down. All of a sudden, this intricate system that was designed to get rid of risk and variability doesn't work anymore. It wasn't resilient. It was actually really fragile. And so this over by overly focusing on eradicating variability and mistakes from the system, we actually create really fragile organizations. And my goal, I want to see organizations become anti-fragile, less fragile, coming out of COVID actually stronger than they were before. And you do that by making sure that your organization is comfortable with well-bounded, defined certain amount of risk in the system. You're enabling people to go make mistakes and to learn. That's what drives resilience. That's what we see in nature, right? Ecosystems become more resilient through their version of mistakes, which are mutations and adaptations at organisms and, and cellular levels that help make that ecosystem stronger over time. We need to do the same in our organizations. Variability is not evil, actually. It's uh, just the opposite. You want it to a degree. I love the energy of that. And I thinking back to something we've always felt at first person, which is our, our job is to make the routine truly routine in the ways that we can so that customers have the space to innovate, ideate, create new. And so that balance between, yeah, there are some things that just need to be simple and not variable, but there's this whole world of humanity that wants to create something new that's sort of teeming to get to the next thing. And if you, we're, we're designed to do right, it's yeah. innate in our nature to create and to build and to do things. If you eliminate that, you've, re you've removed the whole point of having people 
who really can bring that forward. So I, I just, I love the, I love the tension that brings and it's, and the beauty that can be. Yeah. One thought on that Elliot as well, just, you know, your, your, your first comment of that. And I, it's an amazing perspective on that. I, I love that outlook. When you said companies move from a, a growth mindset, right? And that's their focus. And then they get complacent a little bit, right? The preservation, they start to preserve, they start to kind of protect. I wonder if you see that not only affecting them, the company, but, but also people individually in their approach toward work and in their approach. To, doesn't mean that they, you know, growth doesn't mean I got to jump around to a bunch of companies and I got to go be the top of the food chain in every company. I mean, growth means in terms of how, you know, how you're approaching every day. I wonder if you see those environments also creates that within people as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's so true. And I, I don't think it's actually complacency. You look in, inside of individuals and, and with individuals and with large organizations, they're not actually complacent. They're, they're pretty uh, devoted to this idea that I'm going to get rid of risk in the system. And a lot of energy goes to that. And we do that in, in our own lives, right? As you get to a certain point in your career where I can't make mistakes, I, I'm on a track, boy, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I know this isn't the time to make mistakes. <laughs> and this thing, I've got one or two kind of final shots. You're looking to the end zone. Yeah. As a result, we actually render ourselves fragile too. We benefit from learning and from making mistakes. Boy, that's an important piece of growing and becoming a better person, isn't it? No question. And I mean, I, I love your connection back to nature and ecosystems. And you think about even like the true concept of strength building, right? When you're lifting weights, you're you're actually hurting yourself, right? the soreness, all that stuff, but it's actually creating the strength by doing that. If you want to avoid all of that and not feel that, it's actually not creating strength for you, right? I mean, you think about the very nature of that. Elliot, we could spend hours, days, weeks talking about all these topics. I, I find it fascinating. Appreciate your perspective so much. I have to, as we wrap here, I'm just curious for you, as you think about a growth mindset for you, what, what do you look at in the future and say, this is what I want to do. I want the, the notability of your career, the, the father to the family, what, what motivates you? What drives you toward the future? Yeah. Fortunately, I'm in a position to make a lot of mistakes. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm running a company that's growing fast and uh, I have a lot of people depending on me. I've got a family whom I, I love and, and a lot of, you know, they, they are dependent on me and, but I'm, I'm doing things that I've never done before. And I'm making mistakes and I'm trying to be vulnerable and, and to learn through those mistakes and get better. But I, I am inspired and motivated by this opportunity that kind of is just this abundance of opportunities that I have to, to help others around me, whether it's my kids, my spouse, who it's mutual, help each other. My kids help me a lot too, to grow, don't they? Uh, <laughs> teenagers are very good at that. This is true in, in my company too. One of the things that gets me so excited about this business, one of our values at High Alpha Innovation, I love our values. We are, uh, we're builders first. We believe in taking action to create data. We're bold. We believe in telling the truth and dreaming big. We think what we're doing can change the world. And third value is that we're, we're trying to create as much opportunity for as many people as we can. We believe that startups are a great way to do that. And that's what gets me excited. It's creating parking lots filled with cars. I'm really motivated by that. <laughs> Not just as the cars, but the opportunity that it represents for people in those businesses. I just drove by High Alpha yesterday and felt like that was what was happening. And uh, not as many cars at this exact moment, given COVID, but you could feel that footprint and you could feel all the beauty of what's happened in the city around tech coming, coming to life. So it's a great That's picture. Great.
Elliot, thank you so much. Elliot Parker, CEO, High Alpha Innovation. Appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing to put put cars in the in the parking spaces and, <laughs> and change lives. So thank you so much, Elliot, for the time. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging first person BA and using hashtag human resolve on social media. <laughs>